Indeed is made possible through the generous support of Manitou Fund. A special thanks to them for helping us share the hidden world of water with you. All right, it's 2019. It's November, so I'm cold. And it's starting to get dark. Producer Todd Melby and I are in the Chatham neighborhood in the south side of Chicago. We're meeting someone who knows this area really well. My name is Cheryl Watson, and I've lived on this street since 1957. My parents moved here when I was two years old. It's the house where she and her seven siblings grew up. That's a lot of family to fit into a two-bedroom home. So what my dad did is he um, repaired the back porch, split it in half, and put bunk beds. So there's one bedroom that had triple bunks, and the other bedrooms had double bunks. Wow. Yes. (laughs) And so as people, you know, aged out of the house, then you eventually got a room to yourself. But I'm an early girl, so that was a challenge. So I was sharing a room with my two younger brothers. Today, she owns the house. She takes us around back and down into her basement. So it's a little warmer down here. There's a washer and dryer. Lots of other things are stacked up in piles. It's pretty clear the basement's for storage. It's not a furnished living space. That's because her neighborhood and this basement have a long history of flooding. When she was growing up, any time there was significant rain, it would flood. She says it happened on average about five times a year. For me, growing up, it was a way of life. You knew it was going to flood. Everyone would be like on alert. So that tension is in the air when there's storms and stuff. And you wake up in the morning or you hear hear your parents getting up, creeping down the stairs, you know, maybe after the rain stopped, two or three o'clock in the morning to see if, if it's flooded. And then the sound, they would say, okay, everybody, we got to clean up. So, you know, you're getting out of bed, you know, little ones like us, we'd sit on the steps and we're watching everything. So, you know, you might put your little rain boots on and then it's too deep for you to step in. So you just like, they're watching. But as you get older, you're helping to take the, the things that are damaged out or things that can dry out and be cleaned and then helping sweep down the floors. To make matters worse, many times the flooding was caused by heavy rains backing up sewers. When that happened, tainted, putrid-smelling water flowed up through the drains and filled the basement. Then it was a race to throw out ruined belongings, sop up the filthy water, spread bleach to try to sanitize things, then open doors, windows, turn on fans, try to dry it out before the mold set in. Back then, there were family members to help out. Now, Cheryl's on her own. She's spent a lot of money upgrading to try to stop the flooding. The sewer backups have mostly stopped. Now, though, increased rain makes her yard flood, and that water makes its way inside. Over the decades, the water has taken a toll. Basically, it's like your house is rotting from the bottom up. And there's not much you can do. From American Public Media and The Water Main, this is In Deep. We're the podcast that shines a light on the neglected world of pipes and sewers that are supposed to keep our waters safe. I'm Jed Kim. We've talked a lot about Chicago in this podcast. That's because it's got a lot of challenges when it comes to water. Challenges that a lot of other places also see. Today, we're talking about the insidious, long-standing problem of urban flooding. 
And we're also going to talk about one of the big hopes for solving it. In Cheryl Watson's basement, there are all kinds of signs of her lasting battle against flooding. On some walls, there are patches of green paint. Which is now not available because it's toxic. (laughs) Her father put that up years ago to repel water. Another sign? The trench around the perimeter. She had that put in more recently to help drain. I can show you an example of some severe, more severe um, things happening. She takes me over to a part of her basement where a brick wall has repeatedly gotten soaked. That water is in the bricks. And so you see this chafing and breaking down of the bricks. Just crumbling in my fingertips. Exactly. I have concern about, okay, how long can I live here? I have no idea, but I don't, I don't feel, you know, as I get older, financially, I can't afford all of these types of repairs. You try to keep up, but it, it gets ahead of you real quick. This kind of flooding is all too familiar to so many people living in the region. In 2015, the state of Illinois reported that in the previous seven years, the Chicago metropolitan area saw about $2 billion in damage from flooding. And the problem continues. Every time it rains, tens of thousands of people across Chicago and across the metropolitan area look up, look out the window, and dread starts. Oh, it's going to happen again. I don't have insurance. I'm going to have to pay for this. It's going to happen again. Josh Ellis is with the Metropolitan Planning Council. He says having a house that floods is a trap. You know, the American dream is you buy a home, you generate equity in it, and it becomes your source of intergenerational wealth because you get to pass it on to your kids. If you're stuck in a home that you can't sell because you have chronic flooding... Flooding insurance cuts you off after the third or fourth time you flood. So you're stuck here. There's no pathway to generating equity. There's no pathway to intergenerational wealth from that. And in fact, you're stuck in a cycle of fixing it, patching it up, or just forget about it, and your basement becomes a cesspit of mold and disease. While maybe your cousin's living down there because you're trying to get by, right? This is worth paying to end. According to a recent study by the First Street Foundation, Chicago consistently ranks among the top U.S. cities at risk of flooding. Why do so many of Chicago's basements flood? Well, for one thing, there's always been flooding here. The city was built on flat swampland. But things have gotten so much worse as the city's grown and developed. We've created this um, sort of negative relationship with, with water. Anna Wolf is with the Center for Neighborhood Technology, which has done a lot of work looking into urban flooding around Chicago. She says there are three things that are exacerbating the problem. First and foremost, we have built up urban environments that have a lot of pavement, a lot of buildings. And when water falls onto those surfaces, it's the, the structures are built to send it away as fast as possible, right? That means directing stormwater into sewers. Since Chicago has a combined sewer system, which means a single pipe to carry both sewage and stormwater, it's easy to overwhelm things when it rains hard. Second, the infrastructure just wasn't designed to keep up with the increased rainfall from climate change. 
And finally, we also have very old water and sewer infrastructure. It's underground, it sometimes gets forgotten about, and it just hasn't been invested as, uh, as, as much as it should have been over the past several decades. Chicago has spent billions of dollars building what's commonly referred to as the Deep Tunnel. I talked about it in an earlier episode. It's a giant system of underground pipes and reservoirs that'll hold billions of gallons of contaminated water after a rainstorm. But the local sewer systems that connect to the Deep Tunnel haven't been well-maintained by their respective water agencies. Many of them have pipes that are outdated, broken, or clogged. And because of that, even though they haven't done anything wrong... It's the homeowners that pay the price. The Center for Neighborhood Technology examined insurance records. They looked at flood claims in Cook County, which includes most of the Chicago metro area. They found flood claims in almost every zip code in the county. But Anna Wolf says some neighborhoods have it worse than others. Those zip codes that have lower income individuals or black and Latino populations, they are disproportionately impacted by flooding in terms of the number of claims they're making and the the amount of those claims. Dealing with flooding takes money, which makes it doubly worse that it's happening more in lower income areas. On top of all that, for many of the homeowners dealing with flooding, insurance is expensive and hard to get. Part of the problem is that lots of the flooding happens miles from a river outside of the official floodplain. And here's why that's significant. In order to qualify for federal flood insurance, your property has to lie within an officially designated floodplain. Nora Beck is an urban planner with the Chicago Metropolitan Agency for Planning. They've built a flooding susceptibility map based on data from FEMA, insurance claims, countywide reports of flooding on roadways... It's a big data set. We also use the city of Chicago's 311 data. So anything that we could get our hands on that, that sort of explained where, where flooding could be. And you found 70% of claims happened outside the floodplain. Yeah, of the ones where we had a specific address, 70% were out of the floodplain. So these people have no chance of getting federal flood insurance. Flooding is something that people don't like to think about. But ignoring it has kept entire populations under hardship. Here's Josh Ellis with the Metropolitan Planning Council again. It's like this chronic illness that we have that I don't think we've come fully to terms with yet about just how much it costs us every time it rains. The dread, the suffering, often happens in silence. Even though so many are experiencing it, few want to talk about it. Cheryl Watson's thought about moving, but she's spoken openly about her flooding problems. What would that openness do to her asking price? That's one of the reasons why you don't necessarily hear people readily telling you that they flooded because they've, they're concerned about the values of their homes. Cheryl's become an expert on flooding and acts as a community leader trying to get things to improve. But not everyone's an activist. And not everyone goes public with their problem. For every Cheryl, there are tens of thousands of other people who think it's their fault. They're embarrassed by it. They don't know what to do about it. They do know what to do about it, but they can't because they don't have the financial wherewithal. They're a renter and not a property owner. They don't think their property owner will do anything. They're undocumented. They don't want government coming into their house or anybody coming into their house to solve it. And that's what breaks my heart, 
Because if it was just Cheryl's house, we would have fixed it a long time ago, but it's not. So how do you fix the problem of flooding, especially as more powerful storms loom on the horizon? Well, there are a lot of different things that need to be addressed. Funding needs to be secured. Local pipes need to be fixed and vacuumed out. But there's another thing, a shift in city planning that could soak up a lot of the problem of water. We'll hear about that after the break. We're at the James Wadsworth STEM School for Pre-K to 8th grade. Appropriate because we're going to learn about a new way to deal with flooding problems. But this isn't something you learn in class. We head outside to the playground. That's where we meet our guide. My name is Rashid Shabazz, and I'm the principal of Wadsworth STEM School. A few years ago, Principal Shabazz had a problem. His schoolyard wasn't much fun to play on. There was a small playground in one corner, but mostly... It was this blacktop with grass growing up in between the seams of the blacktop, hard surface. And it wasn't safe. Kids would fall, as kids do, and they'd get hurt. Initially, I just wanted green grass. I was asking several partners and organizations, can you provide me green grass when the kids fall? No luck. But then, one night, he was online and came across a program that would renovate his schoolyard into a green space. So he applied, and then promptly forgot about it. Until they won. We have a track, um, we have a turf field, um, which the students can play on. That's right, he got his grass. Painted on the field? We have the football lines, we have the soccer lines, and we have the softball lines, or baseball. Um, so students... As we watch, kids are just ramming around on it. It was a $1.5 million renovation. Apart from the field, there are also several gardens. Some have vegetables that kids grow. Others are filled with plants native to the region. And the concrete surrounding each green area is designed in such a way that rainfall runs down little grooved channels and empties into the gardens or the playing field. Principal Shabazz says when it used to rain... It would be puddles, puddles all over, big puddles. Bad news for the kids who couldn't play outside. But also... When we had the community meetings, the houses up and down the street, they share with us about when it rains, their basements will flood. The playground renovation also added improvements that can't be seen. Namely, a gigantic cistern that sits underneath the playing field. So when it rains, instead of water rushing to the sewer and then flooding the homes, the water now is filtered to our 150,000-gallon tank. Therefore, the houses are not flooding. The basements are not flooding anymore. You're hearing that? Yeah, so when when initially started happening, some of the neighbors would come out and say, you know, that basically, you know, it, it was working. Mm-hmm. This schoolyard's design is an example of what's known as green infrastructure. It differs from traditional gray infrastructure, which includes concrete dams, pipes, and reservoirs, in multiple ways. First of all, there's the look of it. Plants, trees, rooftop gardens, and that puts the green in green infrastructure. Mainly, though, it's a difference in how you deal with water. Instead of sending water into sewers... Green infrastructure holds on to rain where it falls and allows it to soak into the ground. Wadsworth's schoolyard incorporates many different kinds of green infrastructure. The cistern, rain gardens that collect runoff, pavement that allows water to seep through. 
The point is to capture water and direct it to places where it can water plants or percolate safely into the ground. If a project is done right, it'll collect the first one, maybe two inches of rain. Josh Ellis says that's a lot. I mean, when an inch of rain falls on Cook County, it is billions and billions and billions and billions and billions of gallons of water. I checked his math, and yeah, every inch of rain that falls on Cook County equals more than 16 billion gallons. Taking that much off the plate would greatly help reduce flooding and combine sewer overflows where untreated wastewater dumps into rivers. But the thing with green infrastructure is that it's only good for the immediate area surrounding it. Chicago's got widespread flooding problems. To really make a dent here, you're going to need a lot. Not just a green roof over there and a green roof over here, but ultimately green roofs pretty much everywhere. You'd have to redo everything so that all new development has recessed, uh, you know, concave systems that drain water. And then it's got to be every block, every block, every block, every block. Chicago is making a push into developing more green infrastructure. Six years ago, the Metropolitan Water Reclamation District enacted rules that force new developments to capture stormwater on site. And the agency raised taxes and issued bonds and has budgeted more than $110 million a year to deal with stormwater management. Part of that is meant to help fund more green projects. Chicago's biggest green push has been in transforming schoolyards like at Wadsworth Elementary. The agency has contributed to or plans to contribute to about 100 green infrastructure projects in the region. That's far from the blanket of green that would be needed. But Improvements are expensive, really expensive. The agency estimates that the cost to protect Cook County from a 1% storm event would be around $70 billion. They're having to weigh options to see what would make the most impact. And they're using both green and gray infrastructure to do it. Back in the Chatham neighborhood, Cheryl Watson, the homeowner who's lived with flooding her whole life, had some happier stories of what it was like growing up here. There were patches of prairie, a lot more nature back then. A fun place for kids to play. So like across from me, those three houses, that was like a little pond. And so we'd go over there and play. There was turtles, snakes, garter snakes, not venomous snakes, um, crawdads in the mud. Now, who would think there would be crawdads up here? But they were. Today, that's gone. Houses sit packed tightly together with just an alley separating them. It's part of the reason flooding's gotten so bad. And it's part of the reason fixing it is going to be so hard. Green infrastructure is a good thing to have, but you've built up so much, where do you put it? So that's a question. Where can we find sites that are going to really help with uh, management of the stormwater? I checked in with Cheryl recently to see how she's doing. There was a lot of rain this past spring, but thankfully her basement stayed mostly dry. But she's frustrated that she and her neighbors haven't been kept updated about work that's being done on their sewers, says there's little transparency about any possible improvements. Anyway, she says she doesn't have hope anything significant will be done in her lifetime. In fact, she thinks she's got maybe five years left in the house she grew up in. Then she'll find a smaller place in Chatham, one that won't cost her as much to maintain. 
All right, we're going to move away from Chicago now because we want to understand what it looks like when a city really embraces green infrastructure. And despite the promise of green projects, Chicago isn't at the forefront of building them. One city that is, is Philadelphia. That city has more than 700 projects already in place and many more to come. I was thinking of walking like one block to be like in a spot where I can be actually kind of like in the middle of this. We reached out to Catalina Jeremio to learn more. She's an environment reporter for WHYY in Philadelphia. And we spoke to her from the site of a project that's being built right now. It's on a two-mile-long stretch of American Street. You can hear the jackhammers pounding behind her as it's being built. So the project here in American Street is a, a complete kind of like improvement of this corridor. I'm right now in the middle, in the medium. She was standing in the middle of a wide street, multiple lanes of traffic on either side of her. Where she stood in the middle was what's known as a bioswale. Essentially, a ditch that's designed to catch water using nature. And on top of it, there's shrubs and trees and all kind of like green vegetation that helps absorb more rain. Below the green stuff, there's layers of sand and soil and pipes and tanks for draining and storing water. But you can't see that part. It's beautiful. I mean, it's not beautiful yet, (laughs) but it's green compared to what it was before, which is just like all just asphalt. Yeah, there's the promise of beauty. There is a promise of beauty. (laughs) It looks lush, which is funny because this area of the city was so just cement, you know, like just covered in cement and pretty hot and really, really like industrial looking, kind of like a desert. What's happening here is happening all throughout the city. Catalina says it's already made the city look and feel a lot nicer. You go to a neighborhood where you used to have like a vacant lot where it was full of trash. And now you go there and there's this beautiful garden with like all these different kind of bushes and shrubs and native trees. And the people also kind of like, they're happy and they take care of it and it makes them more proud and the property value goes up and all the other benefits come. One big goal of the project is to reduce the amount of rainwater in Philadelphia's sewer system during storms. Like lots of cities, Philadelphia has problems with raw sewage dumping into rivers when the sewer system gets overwhelmed with rainwater. On a regular year, there's about 13 billion gallons of overflow. The EPA said Philadelphia had to do something. And that's where this green infrastructure project came from. The Water Department says this green storm infrastructure has helped reduce that volume by 1.7 billion gallons a year. The goal of this 25-year program is to reduce the combined sewer overflow by 85%. Rather than rely mostly on gray infrastructure like Chicago did with the deep tunnel, Philadelphia is banking on green. Catalina says a lot of the decision came down to saving costs for ratepayers because green was cheaper. To deal with the clean water regulations, um, the water department calculated that if they wanted to do it with gray infrastructure, and by that I mean tunnels, right, underground sewers, mm-hmm. um, and all this cement infrastructure that goes underground, they would have needed like $10 billion, and they didn't have that. And it also would have taken like 20 years to build. By going green, they'll spend a quarter of that $10 billion estimate. 
Catalina says the city adds about 100 projects a year, and they aim to green 10,000 acres, more than 10% of the city. Advocates say there are several benefits beyond the stormwater capture. There's beautification, increased property values, a reduction in the urban heat island effect, and an economic boost. She says a few years ago, the green stormwater infrastructure industry in Philly already had an annual economic impact of $60 million and supported more than 400 jobs. But it hasn't all been sunshine and roses and recessed vegetated sidewalk trenches. There have been a lot of objections to things like the land use, the increased construction, the loss of direly needed parking. This is year nine, right? So there's been a, a whole curb with this program, having in the beginning, having a lot of uh, pushback from both like developers uh, that now have to do these projects, right? So they now have to spend money doing all this like underground engineering systems that absorb and manage stormwater and creating these gardens. Um, and pushback also from um, neighborhoods that's like some neighborhoods don't necessarily want more green areas in their neighborhood because they associate them with more work and more burden. Poor choices for tree plantings in the past caused a lot of headaches, like broken sidewalks and pipes. But she says the industry's gotten a lot smarter about what they plant. Catalina says living with these green projects is becoming the new normal. It's water infrastructure Philly style. There is a problem. We have to solve it somehow. And I think what Philadelphia is trying to say, or the bet that Philadelphia is making, is like green storm infrastructure brings everyone in the city more benefits than installing these huge tunnels underground. That's it for this episode of In Deep. Our production team for this episode includes Annie Baxter, Chris Julin, Todd Melby, and Dan Ackerman. I'm Jed Kim. Kristen Schmidt runs our social media, and we get lots of help from Ellie Lyons and Lauren Humpert. Breakmaster Cylinder composed our theme music. Next week, our final episode will answer questions you've had for us. See you then. <laughs>